Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. This is a huge passion of mine to be able to um, empower patients with choices and increase their toolkit for um, treatments and to stay well. So 27 years as an internist, I just want to give you guys a background of why, why I'm so passionate about this and why I have gotten into lifestyle medicine and functional medicine. About uh, 23 years ago, I started practicing um, and in a practice where I felt like, you know, I was just putting out fires all day. You know, you give, you come in with a, a heartburn and people get a medicine and that medicine gives you three side effects. And then you got to give more medicines for those side effects and it goes on and on and on. And so part of the issue was I just was looking for tools for myself and my patients about how they can heal themselves and the concept of sick medicine versus well medicine which is we want to kind of get people not just in a disease-free state where they don't have high blood pressure, don't have diabetes, but also get people to thrive, push them back past zero and get people living their optimal life. And what I found is that, you know, there's a multitude of, of things that we have in our toolkit that we're, um, you know, excited about talking about. I've talked about it in my book. Um, we talk about it in our lectures, but this lecture specifically it's about this concept of how we really have control over our health uh, based on our choices. And the concept of destiny, you're destined by your genes, never really sat well with me. I really wanted to uh, understand why, you know, we have more control. And epigenetics is a huge field of medicine that's been coming out that kind of um, talks about how we can change the way our genes present. We're never going to change the genes we have because that's an imprint, that's the blueprint for our bodies, but we can turn on and off those genes and we can change the way the transcription of those genes happens, what proteins are generated, what kind of inflammation is generated, what our risks are. So that's really what we're focusing on is the science behind how our lifestyle impacts our genes. The immune system is key to this fundamental concept. So our immune system is not good or bad. We are trying to, um, you know, where we need to quantify how our immune system has a role in everything. With COVID, we've had a lot of talk about the immune system and those people who did, you know, well with COVID were oftentimes people who had more resilient immune systems, whether they were on plant-based diets or they were of optimal body weight, they didn't have high blood pressure because, the immune system is our body's itis response. It is a response to a foreigner. It's a response to something it's angry about. Um, it responds to help keep us safe and help us thrive. So it's not all bad or good because we will talk about the fact that there is an acute response that's very necessary. Our immune system is not the bad guy, keeps us alive, but it's the chronic inflammation that we feed it that our um, choices can you know, manifest as that really throws the immune system off. So it responds to toxins or pathogens. There are white cells in our bodies that respond to pathogens that maintain balance in the body. They recruit inflammatory markers. So they recruit friends when there's, an, there's a um, mechanism of trauma or injury or wound where you're hurt and you need something to get better, whether you have an infection, it recruits cells called cytokines and inflammatory markers that basically help us fight the bad guy. They're members of the white cell family, they're cytokines, they're white cells in, inducing acute inflammation. And when it's persistent, when it's chronic, 
that is really the mechanism of when we start to get potential for tissue organ damage. And epigenetics can change our modulation of the immune system, which means that the, the manifestation of our choices, our lifestyle choices, can change how our immune system turns on and off. So there is a difference between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. So the acute inflammation response is very critical to us. We never want to stop inflammation in general. We don't want to take too many antioxidants or too many anti-inflammatories so that we have no response system because when we have damage, say from being out in the sun or going next to poison ivy or something that's toxic to our skin, we need the body to heal itself. And so that's an inflammatory response. Then the skin and itis of the skin can be a dermatitis. It can be a rash. It can be a sunburn. Um, when we have a cold, when we have um, a viral infection or bacterial infection settles in our sinuses and it settles in our lungs, it can be a sinusitis or a bronchitis or a pneumonia. And this is where our immune system is used to help recruit ourselves, which are anti-inflammatory, but pro-inflammatory too, to try to get the bad guys out, shuffle, shuffle it back to our lymph system and drain it. So the presence of lymph nodes is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be very therapeutic in our healing. So we want an, a response that's robust, that's acting on itself and helping us heal. The problem is that when we persistently keep those signals on, when we have chronic inflammation, we can change that path of cell signaling that decreases the rate of cell regulation, which means that when our cells are ready to kind of pass on, or there's bad cells that are kind of full with fill of cancer because we're fighting cancer all the time, or autoimmune cells, or we have cells that are pre-diabetic or insulin resistant, we have a self-regulation system that can get rid of those cells and, and, and cells die. There's appropriate mechanisms of cell birth and death. But then there's a zombie state called senescence where they're just hanging out. They're not going anywhere. They're just creating a lot of inflammation in the body. And when there's chronic inflammation, it decreases that rate of self-regulation and it decreases the rate of how well we can do self-repair to our tissues, our tissue injury, and eventually it can cause organ dysfunction. So an organ dysfunction, say for the heart, can present as heart disease, heart attacks, congestive heart failure, and organ uh, dysfunction in the brain, neuroinflammation can look like things like anxiety, depression, memory loss. So every organ has an itis component to it, which is really a part of why we need to focus on this immune system. Because an itis of, say, your gut can look like heartburn, indigestion, bloating, gas, um, inability to lose weight, for example. So all of these signs are an itis of something. Inflammation can have blood markers with it. People always come to me and say, my blood was normal. I don't know why I don't feel well. So inflammation, I'm very much about data in terms of personalizing medicine for people. So I use a lot of laboratory data to help me analyze what's off in each person. And sometimes these markers are helpful, but there are times where you can be totally inflamed and you can have normal labs. So um, the IL-6, the alpha, TNF-alpha, there's natural killer self, NF-kappa B markers, there's CBCs, there's C-reactive protein, there's SED rates that are possibly elevated. But just because these labs are normal does not mean that your symptoms aren't legit, that you don't have an itis of something. So 
I go by history, 80% of the time, physical, and also the laboratory data can be helpful, but it's not the end-all be-all by any means. There are very well-known triggers of inflammation and gene modification that we should all be aware of. And most of us are aware that smoking is a big trigger, which can turn on genes for multiple types of cancers, for multiple dysfunctions of the organs in the, in the body. Um, being obese, being having an elevated BMI, which is a ratio of your height to weight, can be, if that's over, um, ideally we like people around 27. If you're over um, uh, 27, you're overweight. And if you're over 30 as a height weight ratio, you're considered obese. And that is an uh, inflammatory condition that your body can have a lot of medical issues connected to it. So weight gain that's excessive, especially in the central area where there's visceral fat, which means fat around the organs, is much more detrimental than fat, say, under the arm or in the thigh area. Um, the, the midsection fat is, a, is an important tool to gauge how maybe um, inflamed your body is, even if those markers are normal. Um, alcohol use, excessive alcohol use um, is also a trigger for having dysfunction with different mechanisms in the body. Of course, stress, which we'll talk about in more detail in this lecture, environmental pollution, chemical exposure, which can be through our water, our foods. You know, there's a lot of processing. There's a lot of soil issues. There's a lot of things that are fed to um, animals and, and in the water system itself that have plastics and chemicals in there. So we do have this exposure that's constant that we need to be aware of. And then there's endocrine disruptors, which we'll talk about, like phthalates and BPA, which are in our plastics, um, with, which are on our receipts and multiple things that disrupt our hormone system that can be triggers for cascading an inflammatory condition within our system. So these are some things that we will touch on later and speak to in more detail. Um, epigenetics is the study of how our behaviors and our environmental exposures can cause changes that, that affect the way our genes work. Remember, we have 23,000 genes as humans, and, I, um, and, and those are something that you're born in with. And there's only about, you know, sometimes only 0.1% to 1% variation within humans that make us our unique different beings. So our genes are part and parcel of our blueprint, but that they're not reversible, but the epigenetics are reversible, meaning our lifestyle choices can turn on and off genes. So if your family history has rheumatoid arthritis, family history has certain cancers, many of the times those can be manipulated. Not all, there are some genes that have a very, very high penetration rate, 50% risk convert. There's a lot of genes that, they're not a lot, there's some genes that have a higher rates of transference, but in general, most genes with the epigenetics input can be reversible in terms of your risk. So when we have a genetic predisposition, we have say a virus or we have stress or we have some sort of input, a pollutant, um, some of the things I, I listed on the previous slide, they can turn on those genes that we were born with, but they can also help you maintain and turn off some of the inflammation that are, we are kind of predisposed first. So they're not changing the DNA sequence, but what they're changing is the proteins 
that are created, which kind of cause enzymatic reactions and inflammation in our body. And epigenetics can change the way we modulate the immune system. That is really the take-home message is that we can change our body's immune system by the way we pick our um, lifestyle choices. This is one of the major studies that is available to us that really highlighted the role of lifestyle. So when we look at heart disease, we can use um, something called a calcium score, which looks at the way our bodies are storing calcium. And this is calcium score is a little bit um, controversial in the sense that it just looks at hard plaque, which is the plaque that is fixed. It's a fixed calcium, and sometimes that is not the one that's responsible for blocking that artery. It's the soft plaque, but it's an indirect gauge of how much plaque former a person is. And we're using it a lot more for family history of heart disease. When patients come to me to say, you know, do I, should I go on a statin? What should I do? We use calcium scores to gauge risk along with some of the other markers like the ASCVD score. Um, but calcium score, they looked at you know, favorable lifestyle or unfavorable lifestyle, which looked at if they were smoking, if they were active, what diet that they ate, um, and also, you know, overall kind of this um, lifestyle factors that can help you with heart disease. So lowering risk with blood pressure and things like that. And when they looked at um, favorable lifestyle versus unfavorable lifestyle, even in the genetically predisposed, even with the people that had the highest genetic risk and family history risk, they saw a 50% reduction in heart disease when people were employing a favorable lifestyle. And this is really empowering because a lot of people feel doomed and destined and, and kind of have this kind of heavy feeling that, oh my gosh, these are my genes that I have, especially in the world of dementia and memory loss. But this should be very empowering for people to know that their lifestyles matter and they can change their history course. So this is just a slide to kind of explain the science behind how these things work. There are things called histones, which are on the chromatin and the DNA, which are modified based on our lifestyle choices. There's RNA, which then transfers into proteins that can um, change when we are changing our lifestyle. And it can contribute to inflammation or anti-inflammation. And just as a plug for why inflammation is so important, why this buzzword is so important, remember almost every medical illness that we have in our medical textbooks has a role of an itis in it, um, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or cancers and neurologic issues. And chronic illness is on the rise. And that's one of the reasons why summits and, and conferences like this exist is that we are in an epidemic of chronic illness. And it is a function of many, many things, including our um, soil quality, our food quality, our fact that we are more sedentary than ever, the fact that we are more stressed out than ever, the fact that nobody's sleeping, you know, sleep is huge commodity that we should really, really, really prioritize. There's a lot of issues on um why we're getting to be a sicker kind of community, but it breaks down into multiple different categories. And one is heart disease, one is cancers, um, another one is neurodegenerative issues like Parkinson's and dementia, and another one is metabolic issues. And that includes a whole bunch of things that are getting worse, like fatty liver, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and their connection is insulin resistance. Um, so sugar, dysregulation of sugar and the role of insulin is really, really becoming a problem because 100 million Americans at least have 
something in the realm of prediabetes or diabetes. They don't even know it yet. Some of them don't even know it. So about 37 million people have diabetes and the rest, maybe 100 to 120 million people have insulin resistance. And that is increasing our risk for multiple issues and maybe even cancer risk. Um, and autoimmune disease is another big area. So immune dysfunction uh, because of the fact that we are um, just having so much stress in our system, whether it's environmental or self-induced. Um, DNA methylation is another big area of why, why our genes can manifest or not manifest. And I have a lot of patients who kind of worry about this methylation issue, but remember that methylation is just one aspect and of detoxification and immune dis changes and activation of your B vitamins, but it is not the end-all be-all. And what I want to stress is that you can over-methylate. So speaking about MTHFR, which is a gene that we check for, is not the end-all be-all, but also when people sometimes go overboard with too much methylation support, and that can also be very dangerous. So we want to try to kind of be in that Goldilocks place where we're not overdoing something and we're not underdoing something. There's a sweet spot for where a lot of interventions are really helpful. Before I talk about what we're going to do to reduce our risk for chronic illness and to control our inflammation in our body, I want to just spend a few minutes on talking about how we break down. And I think this is really where the crux of my practice is. I've been kind of was when I started medicine, I found that a lot of people I practiced in Long Island, um, Great Neck actually. Um, so there was a lot of people that were starting their days at 6 a.m., dropping their kids off to daycare at 6 a.m., going into the city with these long commutes, um, having eight to 10 hour days, and then coming back home at eight o'clock, picking up their children from daycare, starting dinner. You know, sleep was not a priority. The stress of a job was not a priority. The time away from home was not a priority. It was, there was a lot of, just a lot of stress, stress on the system. And the autonomic nervous system is there to help keep us alive. It is, if I want to pick up my pen, this is the voluntary nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is your nervous system that is autonomic, meaning it is helping you independent of your volition or your thought for about it. So it is including usually three things. The enteric nervous system is one part, but we're going to spend some time talking about the sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system. So the sympathetic system is your fight or flight. It's your, um, you know, get you away from that tiger. It elevates your heart rate. It elevates your blood pressure. It, it induces adrenaline in your body to get you to move. And it is really, really critical. Um, ancestrally, we've had this response to help us, you know, stave off, you know, threats from enemies, um, life threats, um, you know, running away from animals, tigers, and, you know, even famines, when we're nutritionally deprived, when we can't get access, have access to nutrition, it's a stressor to our body. So sympathetic system has saved us. It's not wrong. It's not bad. Our balance for that, and these systems cannot be active together, is the sympathetic system is fight or flight. This is our parasympathetic system. This is our rest and our digest system. Very, very important in our healing. So the way our bodies were made was that the sympathetic system turns on, gets us away from danger. And then the parasympathetic system turns on and helps us rest and digest. And this is where the healing happens. This is our rest and digest. Our digestion, it's not only important because of our digestion system is where our 80%, 60 to 80% of our immune system sits in that digestion part in our gut. 
and our rest, which is not just sleep, it's also how we think. If we're walking around anxious and stressed out all day, that is not activating our parasympathetic system. So 80% of what I do in my medical practice as an internist is I just teach people how to activate their rest and digest. And my, my perception is that the difference between this, when people are on this sympathetic overdrive, fight or flight all the time, running, 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 they're depleting their rest and digest. And what we want to do is we want to try to raise that rest and digest. That's all we're trying to do. It's like recharging your battery. Imagine what you feel like when your battery is uncharged, when you're sitting somewhere and you see your iPhone battery, you know, on 1% panic, but we don't do that to ourselves. We're not, we're not treating ourselves as well as we do even our car. When that light comes on in our car saying battery, you know, the oil change, oil change, oil change, something, the engine, 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 flashing lights, we're not duct taping that. We're kind of addressing that issue because we know that car is going to break down. Well, that's the same thing with your body. Your body will break down if you don't address this rest and digest part. So what we feed our body, how we treat our bodies, um, microbiome, the gut microbiome is also in that digest part. And where our immune system is, is really critical to kind of our healing and also rest. So the autonomic nervous system, just a summary, is the sympathetic system is adrenaline. It's, it's epinephrine, it's, it's norepinephrine, it's cortisol, and cortisol is not bad or good. People have a very bad rap about cortisol. There's a lot of hype about, you know, cortisol put me, I have belly fat because of my cortisol. Um, cortisol is bad for you. But when they looked at studies of mice and they took away all the stress response, those mice died. So it's not that it's bad for us. It's the fact that we keep it turned on for every little thing. That is the problem. It's turning on and it's um, keeping us inflamed. It's giving us chronic inflammation because of the fact that we're telling it. And what are we doing? We're telling it because we're not sleeping. We're sitting too much. We're also sitting, you know, we're upset about the emails that aren't going out. We're upset about sitting in traffic. We're upset about our, our kid not making the, you know, the soccer team, whatever it is. We're always kind of getting that sympathetic system to trigger. And it's not just about safety and running away from that tiger anymore. But when the sympathetic system is activated, it's giving our blood flow more to our muscles. It's an anti-inflammatory because if you can imagine ancestrally, if you're running away from a tiger, you don't want to stop and say, oh my gosh, I have back pain. I have my knee pain. So it's an anti-inflammatory so that you can get to move. So if your house is on fire or if you have your child fell down on a, on a, you know, on a playground, you need to run there. You need to pick them up and you see these stories of People doing heroic measures when when you're like, how did they lift that car off their child? Well, this is that sympathetic adrenaline response that kind of gets you to the point where you're just there to help your child or help you survive. And it's also increasing vigilance because our pupils dilate. Um, and when we're running from a tiger, we don't want to be sleeping. We don't want to have to go to the bathroom. We don't have to want to urinate. We don't want to reproduce when our bodies are constantly under threat. So we need to signal that that system to say, you know what? Things are okay. Parasympathetic system, which is the rest and digest, it is the biggest nerve innervation to it is the vagus nerve. And in my practice, we talk about vagal nerve stimulation all day long. It's really, really important to calm down that vagus nerve. And that vagus nerve inflammation was one part of a huge reason why people have COVID and long haul COVID. They found that the vagus nerve is very inflamed with COVID and long haul COVID. So in my long haul COVID patients, um, my patients who've had adverse reactions to vaccines, 
and even viruses in general, my chronic fatigue patients, we work a lot on vagus nerve healing from many, many, many different modalities. But the concept is to support that rest and digest, support that vagus nerve. And, you know, it's also in charge of our fertility because when you're constantly stressed out, there's a lot of infertility out there. And it's not just because women are stressed. It's also because that our parasympathetic system doesn't have enough juice. Our vagus nerve doesn't have enough juice sometimes. So multiple reasons why fertility is an issue. Oh, sorry. Let me just uh, hold on one second. I need to plug in, plug in my or Sorry, guys. Um, multiple reasons why we need to have um, access to that vagus nerve. But Fertility is also on the rise and sleep quality is also really, really important. And parasympathetic system helps us rest, helps us keep calm. And even for things like anxiety, um, you know, we need to kind of give ourselves some tools. So breath, like just taking a deep breath will activate your vagal tone. If you exhale longer than you inhale, activates your parasympathetic, it activates your vagal tone. Um, can't under stress the role of the microbiome because it is key in turning our genes on and off. It is key in the epigenetics phenomenon is these bugs that are in our gut that are gene generating 3 million genes. So remember I said we have 23,000 genes as human beings, but our gut microbiome gives us 3 million genes. So we are literally 10% of our gut microbiome. And when our microbiome, when our gut bugs are unhealthy, we are going to be unhealthy. And that can show up as joint pain, brain fog, you know, fatigue, I can't lose weight, so many different itises that can show up because our microbiome does many, many, many things for us. And this is just a snapshot of what it does, but it, one, helps us digest our food. So without a proper digestion system, without proper um, access to the juices that are in our mouth and in our gut and from our pancreas we and stomach acid, Along with that, the microbiome, the good bacteria, helps us digest and it creates an environment of a stable, strong gut. So in our cell, in our gut, we have these little cells that have these finger-like projections, and these are the uh, and the epithelial cells of the gut, single cells that between that and the blood, blood is in this area where it's in the colon. So your immune system sitting here waiting for the bad guy, and when the food comes, it comes past. The good microbiome, the microbiome is sitting right above this. So the good microbiome starts to digest the food. These finger-like villi start to digest the food. And as the food comes out on the other side, it looks like a digested food particle. And that your immune system says, cool, I don't have to worry about that guy. But as we get unwell, as we start doing lifestyle changes that are unfavorable to us, as we start taking foods that are more inflammatory or medications that are changing our gut microbiome, like antibiotics, these microbiomes start having hole in them. The bacteria start having holes in them. The finger-like projections start to fall. The cells start to separate. And then the, the food that's going through it is not looking like a digested food particle. So all of a sudden now your asparagus looks like a weird thing. And every time you eat that asparagus, you are going to start to get an itis of something. And that itis could look like brain fog, fatigue, joint pains. Um, we do a lot with the gut integrity but microbiome is really, really a key part of that. It creates our vitamins. So it creates those B vitamins that help us do so many things. So most of the reactions in our body are based on enzymatic reactions, it means you need enzymes to create one thing to the next things. And a lot of those 
enzymes will need cofactors and cofactors are in the form of nutrients and vitamins and minerals. And that comes from where? That comes from our food, but it's also created by our gut bugs. So our healthy gut bugs create um, these nutrients that help our whole body function efficiently, which is another reason why it's so important. It also makes our hormones. So it, you know, when, when there is a lot of hormonal issues like menopause, premenopause, perimenopause, PMS, postpartum depression, you know, there's all these hormonal induced itises that are created in our body and it's real. But one of the things that change is that your gut microbiome can change when you have um, associated with um, these hormonal changes, but it helps create our hormones. And that is driven by a lot of it is driven by fiber. So one of the first things I try to do when people have any sort of hormone issues, I work on the gut to help them create these hormones, which also are um, created, which are also helped by the vitamins. So all of these things work on top of each other. Neurotransmitters. So our happy juice, our serotonin, 80% is made by the gut bugs. So dopamine, serotonin, these are things that communicate to the brain about motivation and energy. And also you could be tired from not having enough serotonin or dopamine. You can be tired and have brain fog when you don't have enough dopamine around. So you can maybe not sleep well when your serotonin's not happy. So working on your gut bugs can actually change our neurotransmitters. It also is a big factor in metabolism. So all day long, we deal with people that say, I can't lose weight. I can't lose weight. There's many reasons for that. And just one part of it is calories in and calories out. Of course, that matters, but that is not the end all be all. The quality and our gut integrity, our um, lack of intestinal permeability or leaky gut, our presence of bad guys like abnormal bacteria, fungus, or yeast um, can also deter inflammation in our body can also kind of slow down our metabolism, our hormone imbalance slows down our metabolism. So there's a lot of things that hold on to weight, not just the fact that what you're eating. There's also the gut brain connection. So foods you eat grow certain bacteria, which can create things called short chain fatty acids that are communicators to the brain that help us think, help our mood, help the quality of our brain function as well. There's actually a thought that our brain has its own microbiome and some of the inflammation, the neural inflammation that can present as anxiety or depression is related to the fact that we have an abnormal brain microbiome, which is can be communicated through the gut. So there's a two-way street between the brain and the gut. So if you think about, you know, when you're stressed out, some people, especially women, tend to have GI issues, heartburn, indigestion, diarrhea. They call it irritable bowel syndrome, but it could be just a manifestation of a stress response. Um, energy production, how much energy you have. So you can be tired from just mental fatigue. Having bad gut bugs can make you tired. I feel like I'm sleepy. I can't do what I need to do. My stamina has changed. My workouts have changed. That could be a function of your gut bugs as well. And as we're talking about today, genes, you know, microbiome is one of the main places where those genes turn on and off. So very, very important to take care of these gut bugs and also inflammation can turn on and off through, through the presence of a healthy microbiome. Okay, so you don't just wake up one day and have diabetes. You don't just wake up one day and have heart disease. It is a process. This inflammatory process has been happening for a while. And just like your car is telling you, makes noises, flashes lights, your symptoms 
is, is telling you, your body is telling you, I am having an itis. I'm, ha- I'm not in balance. Please address this issue. And that can show up as fatigue. That can show up as heartburn and dejection. That can show up on the skin like acne, weight gain, um, inability to gain weight, poor concentration, memory, low mood, itis, any sort of symptom that's present can be a manifestation of a poor gut microbiome, the start of an inflammatory process, the issues about developing illness. So many, many ways your body's trying to communicate to you. We have to stop and listen and find out, go back and look to see, am I in balance with my parasympathetic system? So eventually, if you continue to ignore, 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 when that sympathetic system stays up, if you have a heart rate elevation, a blood pressure elevation, and a cortisol elevation, if that keeps staying on and on and on and on, you know, what does high blood pressure over time turn into? Well, it could turn into hypertension. It could turn into heart disease because that's a risk factor. What does heart rate elevation turn into over time? If you keep ignoring it, it could turn into palpitations, tachycardia, sinus arrhythmias, or, you know, all sorts of arrhythmias that can happen. And Cortisol, when it stays elevated, this is when, you know, the cortisol uh, concept of it's our enemy starts to really play out. When cortisol's on all the time, it can cause immune dysfunction. It can start to change the way it's attacking viruses and attacking bacteria. You can start showing up as how many of us, like when we're, when we're totally run down, we catch a cold and that cold just doesn't go away. That's our immune system dysfunction. And sometimes when you persist, some people get autoimmune disease. Our bodies are capable of t- attacking, you know, the things that are attacking itself. But when our cortisol and our immune system is dysfunctional, it stops recognizing those rogue antibodies that are attacking ourselves. So autoimmune disease can, 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 can start showing up. Cortisol also is important to get blood sugar into the body. Blood sugar, our brain needs glucose in order to function. So when we're under stress, when we're sleep deprived, when our body needs more fuel, it's going to ask for sugar. It's going to ask for glucose, which is those sugar cravings people feel when they're tired. It's going to be when I'm sleepy, when I'm sleep deprived, when I'm totally stressed out. Those are the comfort foods that we crave. And that's the cortisol that's demanding more sugar into the body. What happens when cortisol's all, all the time, demanding sugar all the time? Well, that can lead to insulin resistance and diabetes. So our manifestations of a diagnosis, if you will, is a function of something that's been playing out for a while that is causing this imbalance that your body is telling you, hey, this is brewing, this is brewing, please listen to me. So it can look like these diagnoses of arthritis and heartburn and cancer and irritable bowel, but it's very unusual to have it happen overnight. So this is where we need to start making our choices and figure out how we're going to help our system. So lifestyle factors, imbalance, equal inflammation. So on one side, we have this concept of poor sleep, mental stress, water pollutants, processed foods, the sedentary lifestyle that most of us are now leading because of, um, you know, since COVID, a lot of people are able to work from home. Their commute is gone. Their movement, their parking, they're going to a parking lot is gone. They're not walking upstairs. They're sitting in their you know, their office or their kitchen or wherever they're working from, and they sit and they just do Zoom calls all day. So we're becoming more sedentary. We have to make sure that we are fighting that concept. Environmental toxins are also real. um, And some of those are our stressors. They're not all of them, but that's an example of the stressors that we feel. And we have lots of tools 
lots of tools that are, some of these have been scientifically shown to also change the way our genes manifest. Exercise, yoga, clean water, meditation, plant-based diet. You know, these are our resources. This is our toolkit. And in there, I also want to throw in fasting, calorie restriction, and um, optimism. So how we think, how we are able to control our thoughts can also help us, you know, have hope. If we have hope, we tend to do better with our health. And those are our resources for, um, you know, keeping us in balance and lowering inflammation. Again, when this scale tilts one way to the other, inflammation is started. So we've talked more about this in our book, Body on Fire. Um, Dr. Agarwal, who's a cardiologist, her journey also through rheumatoid arthritis is discussed in the book, um, how she's kind of conquered that with lifestyle. And um, this is the tool that I give all my patients, that these are the concepts that I want you to kind of rely on as we deal with your individual journey. Um, Inflammation is an itis. It's your body is on fire. It's an itis of something. So one thing we want to start looking at is also not just what is anti-inflammatory, we want to look at what is inflammatory. What are we doing that are turning on these genes for inflammation? What are we doing? Why do we have so much chronic illness? This is not a genetic issue. This is a lifestyle concept that is affecting our choices, which is causing illnesses to go up. Because remember, our genes haven't changed. We have the same genes, but we have more chronic illness now than ever. So we got to look at things that are significantly causing that issue. I know a lot of you have already heard about the diet and, and some of these things, but I just want to reiterate that the SAD diet, which is the standard American diet, can be loaded in inflammation potentials um, through the saturated fats with meats, um, through refined grains where they're taking out, you know, refined means that they're taking out things that are nutritious and the fiber. Fiber is key. We are an under fiber uh, it's an epidemic that how little fiber we have. So fiber deficiency is actually a real problem. Why? Because fiber grows our microbiome. So microbiome is very important to have um, lots of different colonies, lots of different guys, lots of different key players, and fiber grows those things. So when we're eating foods that are, you know, taken out, the fiber has been taken out, it's really problematic. And also processing. So Processing is the same thing. They're removing the nutrients. They're removing the things that are anti-inflammatory. So vitamin C, vitamin A, all these micro micronutrients, these phytonutrients that are in our foods are kind of taken out and dyes are added and artificial chemicals and that's processing. So those are inflammatory to our body. Um, high fat dairy products, sugars are very, very, um, very concerning because we're getting lots and lots of sugars through also our beverages. Um, sugary drinks, you know, 0.9%, only two to 3% of adults obtain their recommended dose of fruits and vegetable intake. Really problematic because this is a high issue of why chronic illness is, is on the rise. So saturated fats, I know you guys all heard about this. We talked about this last night in our small group, um, is that saturated fats, it's, it's linked through lots of science through uh, for causing heart issues, cholesterol elevations, heart disease, diabetes, things like insulin resistance. And again, insulin resistance, all of these things are risk factors for other things. So if you have diabetes, you're higher risk for heart disease. If you have hypertension or obesity, you have higher risk for getting all of these other issues too. So they kind of all round, you know, travel with each other. So insulin resistance is a big problem for polycystic ovaries disease, fatty liver, which is increasing exponentially where we are having problems with non-alcoholic liver failure 
which is from not alcohol anymore, but this concept of um, fructose corn syrup or other things that activate our insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, which is a compilation. We have to, we have to coin a term now because all of these these illnesses are kind of kind of coming together, and that's what metabolic syndrome is: is a compilation of multiple issues, including low HDL, high triglycerides, increasing waist circumference, hypertension. All these things are kind of coming together because they're all related to the same risk factors. Okay, so we know the epigenetics show that high fat, um, high calories can actually alter your DNA. It can alter your nRNA expression, which changes the proteins that are being um, that are being generated, which can actually induce inflammation in our body. It alters DNA methylation. It increases the inflammation pathways that are considered pro-inflammatory. Remember, pro-inflammatory pathways are important when we have things like cuts, uh, virus infections, and things like that. But then it's got to shut down. It's got to shut off. But when we have these these um, messengers that tell our DNA that hey, keep going with this because we still are in a in a state of acute inflammation, those pro-inflammatory pathways stay on. And that can be triggered by trans fats and saturated fats. So processed foods are also problematic and they kind of come into some main um, subsets of foods like wheat, um, corn, things like fructose corn syrup, maltodextrin, other names that you hear about that are derivatives of corn that are not really actual corn. Um, soy is also a, a main problem that's kind of processed in many ways. We have all these like plant-based foods, quote unquote, that are processed soy. So if anyone's looked at like those, um, sorry, well, this isn't soy, but they have those like Beyond Burgers and meat alternatives, if you will, that are just maybe, maybe slightly less unhealthy, but they're still really unhealthy with the amount of processing in there and the amount of um, saturated fats in there. So when we think about plant-based, we want to think more about whole foods, unprocessed, without chemicals, preservative-free, um, that is more of a bigger concept than just having a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet because it is um, the quality of the foods that are really matters. And as much as you can stick to things that are its original form is very important and to have it not have any of these issues in there. Um, do you want to spend some time on fructose corn syrup because it is a big, big problem that's linked to many uh, uh, things like hypertension, Again, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, obesity, central obesity, the fat deposition can be central, uh, metabolic disturbances. And, you know, I would say try to limit it to none, but the studies show that there was harm over 50 grams per day. And the epigenetics of this has been seen that in those who take um, significant amounts of this, they were having increased heart disease and increase in pro-inflammatory pathways. And it also increases the cholesterol pathways. So, uh, you know, 60 to 70% of um, our cholesterol comes from genetics of how much our liver makes. And um, maybe 15 to 20, sometimes 30% is listed as what we're taking in by mouth, but that's just the cholesterol. But certain foods that we eat can increase the way and how much amount our, our liver makes. So it's not just what you're eating that's coming through as the cholesterol, but it's signals to tell the liver to make more cholesterol when we're eating foods that are high in saturated fats or high in free sugars. And, you know, just looking at uh, 
it's crazy what things have sugar, ketchup has sugar, you know, things that are bottled and canned and, you know, just start looking at labels. And my patients are always floored at why French fries would have, you know, high fructose corn syrup, but it's everywhere and it's addicting and it's, it makes you want more. And it's very, 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 um, you know, people put it in their, um, their fast foods because it tastes good. And of course, you're going to get more consumers if your food tastes good, because our gut microbiome is also in charge of our taste buds. And when we eat unhealthy foods, we are going to crave unhealthy foods. The good news is as we switch that diet to more whole food plant-based, our palate starts changing. So in my practice, when I tell people they have to get off cheese, they have to get off meats, they, I mean, some people cry. I mean, it's, it's like very overwhelming to kind of have all this told to you. But however, you know, know that, you know, when I say things like, you know, cruciferous vegetables, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, spinach, kale, people tend to get really uncomfortable because they never like the taste of it. But as your palate changes, as you do more with these kind of foods, adding whole foods, the microbiome starts changing and our taste buds change. So, you know, the cravings that we have of salt and sugar and sweet and sour, umami and savory are all legit things that we are on our, our taste buds, but they will start to change what they crave. Your body will start to change it as you remove some of these things and add more whole foods. So that's really encouraging. It doesn't take a lot of time. It's only a few weeks. Sometimes it's four weeks. People are like, oh, I can't even look at a soda anymore. I can't even have a chocolate chip cookie. I had someone this morning tell me that she doesn't even, she used to be addicted to cookies. And now she's been doing the diet that we've been talking about, our food plan, I like to call it versus a diet. Um, that she doesn't even want to look at her cookies. She thinks it tastes horrible. So that's wonderful. And it, it, it didn't take that long. It's very exciting to see. Um, Anti-inflammatory pathways are also um, really, really important to talk about these things called essential fatty acids. So there are good fats that help de increase our anti-inflammatory pathways epigenetically. So uh, polyphenols, which are phytonutrients, they're chemicals that are on the colors of of plants that are really, really essential to the signaling. They're basically cell messengers that tell the microbiome and tell our cells of our body, um, to, you know, they tell them to do things. And so they're loaded in, you know, unprocessed grains, chocolate, red wine, tea, fruits, and vegetables. Fiber, like I said, is so key. It's, uh, it's so important because it's such an anti-inflammatory input. Um, different, the different phytochemicals like phenolic acid, flavonoids, again, colorful, colorful uh, fruits and vegetables and colorful plant products, um, also in spices. Resveratrol, gallic acid, and curcumin have also been studied for epigenetic changes that they cause to help us. And we're going to spend some time talking about these. Okay, let's start with EPA, DHA, which is an essential fat. They're omega-3 fatty acids. Um, omega-6 fatty acids tend to be very inflammatory, and the standard American diet has a huge amount of omega-6 fatty acids, which can be very inflammatory. So that ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 is very skewed. That number is very variable. It ranges from, you know, one to four to one to 20. And so we, we want, basically at the end of the day, we want less omega-6s, much, much, much more omega-3s. Um, always like to do it through foods if possible. We do a lot of, um, you know, nutrient testing in the office so we can see when people are deficient in omega-3. So sometimes we supplement with the omega-3s as well, but we always start with food. We start with things like walnuts and chia seeds and flax seeds, hemp seeds, kale, avocado. And there is some data to show small amounts of, um, of uh, 
sorry, the um, olive oils, the um, can also be uh, anti-inflammatory. The oil concept is controversial. I'm sure you've all heard multiple different viewpoints of it. Less is more in general, but in the epigenetic literature, there is some data to show that um, olive oil can be um, anti-inflammatory and turn on some of those genes to lower inflammation. It really needs to be personalized. Um, I don't wanna say broad strokes for everyone to do it or not do it, but it needs to be personalized to your cardiovascular risk, your endothelial risk. There's also data that show that um, oils can be um, inflammatory to the vascular endothelial cells. So the personal risk history is important. Um, the milieu of like where you're eating it and how much you're eating it and what concept you're eating it, it also needs to be understood. So less is more, uh, but our cookbook does have some um, olive oil in it and avocado oil in some of the recipes, usually more as a spray or a very, very little amount, but we do have recipes in our books that include some of this. Fiber improves satiety. Um, fiber, can't say enough about it. Really, you can't do um, too much with fiber because it, it is so helpful for reducing so many of the risks that we have for so many of the health issues. It improves satiety. It improves bowel movement. So in medical school, we learned that, you know, a bowel movement every three days is okay. That is not true. We want one to three bowel movements per day for everyone because it is a form of detoxification. Detoxification is really important because we are now having a lot of toxins that are coming at us through water and environment and our food. So we need our detox systems to be open. We need to be functionally, um, our garbage disposals um, are in the shape of sweat. So sweating is a garbage disposal, um, you know, trying to get urine, obviously, through kidney. We need to drink enough water to make light colored urine maybe a light yellow, depends really, eight to 10 glasses, maybe more if you're someone who works out in the sun, maybe some, maybe more if you're someone who sweats a lot, maybe some more if you're a high intense athlete. Water content really is variable, but at minimum eight glasses a day. Um, there's some studies that show half your body weight in pounds is in the ounces that you need for water. Um, the other big place, so we said the sweat, we said kidney, we said bowels, the other big place is your liver. So supporting your liver with nutrients um, is really important. Um, but that is that is also fiber helps with healthy bowel movements, helps us detoxify that way, reduces the risk for heart disease. It decreases cancer risk. It decreases overall inflammation. It actually turns off inflammatory pathways. It improves our glucose control and decreases obesity. Um, the goal that based on the RDA is 35 grams for men and 25 grams for women. That is the basic minimum that people should get. The average American gets between 12 and 15 grams a day, maybe. Um, so we want higher is more. So uh, 35 grams a day might be where you start, but then you keep growing with it. The concept of fiber is challenging for some because they're not used to eating. They're used to eating maybe a bowl of blueberries a day, which has three or four grams in it. But there is... Um, that layered approach where you're combining multiple foods in one serving, um, kind of like that uh, kava concept where you start with greens and you add quinoa and you add a grain and you add vegetables and you add beans and you add, you know, nuts and seeds on top. And all of a sudden you have, you know, 15, 12 to 15 servings in one bowl, which can maybe get you your whole requirement for that day. But 
you have to think about fiber. You got to go after it. You got to start looking at labels and looking at charts so that you can get a general idea. This is that important. You want to start. I don't usually ask people to calorie count or look at um, calories in general, but I do want to look at labels for the fiber issue and for the added sugar issue and for the fat issue. But this is a big one that yet less is more. I mean, so more is more. Um, and the biggest issue I hear back from people is I can't tolerate fiber. I can't eat fiber foods. They make me bloat. They make me feel uncomfortable, but that is a function of an unhealthy gut microbiome. So there are subsets of people who can't handle certain things like gluten, nightshades, um, certain types of fiber. And I think this is a function of your gut microbiome or like celiac disease, of course, is gluten issues, um, don't want to mess with gluten if that's the case. And maybe 10% of people have a gluten sensitivity and some people have issues with certain types of fiber, but it doesn't mean all fiber. So if you can't, if you don't generally like or can't tolerate, say broccoli, it doesn't mean you shouldn't eat any cruciferous vegetable. It should also mean you try it different ways. You cook it, you roast it, you try it in different ways. But as your gut microbiome changes, as it starts to change, then you are going to start to be able to tolerate more foods that have fiber in it. So it's really important to know that you the concept would be to keep trying and don't discount an entire group of fruits or vegetables based on one, like one black bean. I can't tolerate kidney beans means I'm not going to ever eat any beans is not a good idea. You want to make sure you're trying things, even in the nightshade family. Some people get arthritic symptoms with nightshades, but if you are intolerant to say peppers, that doesn't mean that you are intolerant to potatoes and tomatoes and, you know, other things in that nightshade family. So you want to really be cognizant of not excluding entire groups because we want to be able to have multiple sources for getting fiber a day. This is a chart that shows about fiber, you know, 35 grams. If you had an avocado and you had blackberries in one day, that's already 19 grams. Um, then you you had a bowl of lentils. That's another 27. You're up 27, 30 grams. You can have a little bit of broccoli. So you can add this up very easily to the minimum requirement. You just have to make an effort to kind of looking at it. Um, so, you know, these charts are helpful uh, because you can get an idea. But the concept is to try to be able to do things in a layered approach you know, more stir fries, maybe smoothies, you can, you can add and, and change things because diversity is very important. So the other way to grow our good microbiome is through probiotics and prebiotics, ideally through foods. Um, these are also remember how important gut microbiome is, how it is, is so important for turning on and off our genes. We want to create a diverse microbiome. So pre probiotic foods are very helpful to grow the, the guys that are the colonies that are in there, you just get more of them. But prebiotic foods are loaded in certain fibers that are non-digestible and they just grow multiple colonies. So I'm trying to switch my patients to more of the prebiotic concept, um, whether it's from foods or we add supplements when we need, but it is a concept of doing more with these type of foods and kind of growing multiple colonies because we know we age better when we have diversity, when we have diverse microbiomes. So each food I eat, so raw kale grows one bacteria, cooked kale grows one bacteria, raw onions grow one bacteria, cooked onions grow another bacteria. We want to diversify how we're eating things because the more colonies we have, the more healthier and resilient we are to the insults that follow us. So we will age better with more colonies. And so that concept 
would be to try to aim for, you know, 30 different at minimum foods, plant-based foods per week. Um, and you can use these type of foods to help you grow better colonies in your gut. So polyphenols are those phytonutrients we talked about that your plants have made because they are trying to withstand the insults of bacteria, viruses, and fungus, and even sun damage. And so they're loaded with antioxidants and anti-inflammatory to help them survive. And when we eat them, we get that benefit for our body. They're cell messengers. They regulate immune cells. They decrease inflammation. And they can actually affect the manifestation of gene expression and pathways. And they reduce chronic illness. So more polyphenols, more colors, eat the rainbow. Um, you don't necessarily have to memorize what foods have it per se, but you should try to grow some of these keystone states, uh, keystone strains. Um, the polyphenols are very, very helpful to work through. Uh, they've been studied in the epigenetic capacity. They signal the gut microbiome. They grow acromensia, which is one of the key bacteria that we have found over the last few years to show that it really helps um, create health. We didn't used to have probiotics that had acromensia in it. It's it's in it's in foods, but um, foods that have polyphenols in them. But anti-inflammatory and antioxidants. Um, again, so many good things about these polyphenols, and they're loaded in certain fruits and vegetables, and whole grains, and teas, in chocolate, and red wine, and resveratrol, curcumin. Um, a point about red wine: if you're not an a red wine drinker, please don't start. Um, it is never meant to be of a health benefit. It's just that if you choose to drink alcohol, then red wine does have some of these polyphenols in it. Um, but obviously try to do it through other things that are um, less toxic to your body. Um, resveratrol and curcumin uh, can be found in foods, but also in um, as supplements, which I do use on occasion with my patients. So the Mediterranean diet, um, olive oil, grapefruit extracts, green tea extracts also have lots of polyphenols in it. Um, and these are some of the studies that were um, cited in this article. If anyone's interested, they have lots of studies that show the amounts of polyphenols that you need and what they saw in the studies. And there are so many of them. I didn't want to go spend time, but if you can, you can look them up. This is a great article on the epigenetics. Um, so other nutrients that are very anti-inflammatory Vitamin D. Vitamin D is a, a very, very big nutrient that I use, you know, I measure in everybody that walks in the door. It is an anti-inflammatory. It's great for cardiovascular disease. It's great for hormone balance. It's um, great for immune dysfunction, autoimmune disease, pain. Um, but it is, it is found in mushrooms. A lot of times it isn't enough to just get it through foods. Um, and we talked a little bit about um, the vitamin D issues last night in our small group discussion. So people can listen to that discussion about, you know, struggling with low vitamin D. There were some good options that were listed in there. But um, vitamin D, you know, get your level measured and try to get your levels between 50 and 80 range. The, the range on the labs go from 30 to 100. But I like to get people on the optimal or high end. So that because it has so many positive benefits, um, zinc has also been studied that shows that it has the ability to modulate the immune response. You can get that through seeds and nuts and different fruits and vegetables. Selenium is in Brazil nuts. Um, 
not a lot. You don't need a lot. You only need a few, like maybe three to five per week in order to get the recommendation for thyroid function. Selenium is really, really important for thyroid function. And our soils are very depleted in selenium. So there's not a lot of sources of selenium. Um, and, and one, the first thing I check for in anyone with thyroid dysfunction is a selenium level. And coenzyme Q10 has also been studied, which is an antioxidant. It's depleted with multiple medications that we use. So there's also this nutritional deficiency or depletion that happens with meds that we use. Um, the most important class of medication is the statins. And I'm not saying statins are bad. I'm just saying that we have to chase some of the nutrient deficiencies that we give when we give some medications based on risk for people. Um, we have to give them CoQ10. Metformin is another big class in the insulin resistance diabetes world that also depletes CoQ10. So nutrients are also depleted just because we take some medications and we have to kind of chase those levels. So phytonutrients, remember there's different colors, there's um, greens and oranges and reds and purples and whites. And so all of them are loaded in different antioxidants, different nutrients. So vitamin C and A, folic acid, these all are very, very, you know, so many nutrients to talk about, not enough time in this talk, but it's kind of like spices, like there's just so much data and so much information to talk about that. I would just want you to just start doing it start eating it, just know you're doing your body good. And um, a lot of them help us age better. A lot of them help preserve our structural integrity, brain integrity, help our immune system fight off things like diabetes and heart disease. Again, another list of just the, the, the different types of phytonutrients and what they're found in. Um, in this list, I will say that my preference is that everybody really focus on cruciferous vegetables because of the detox potential and the sulforaphane that's in there as well. Because um, cruciferous vegetables, especially for hormones, I do a lot with hormones, perimenopause, menopause in my practice. And one of the key players is, you know, getting enough uh, cruciferous vegetables in to help metabolize your estrogen. A lot of us are walking around estrogen dominant um, and cruciferous vegetables are really loaded with them. And also want to mention sprouts. Sprouts are huge. They're just packed with nutrients. And they're so wholesome. They take care of um, any sort of anti-nutrients that people talk about, like with the lectins. Um, the, you can get a lot of nutrients packed into a little sprout. You can throw sprouts in everything. But specifically, broccoli sprouts are one of the highest antioxidants out there. And so they're really, really helpful for lots of things in our body, specifically hormone problems. So um, just a small list for people to kind of look through. But um, everything on here is you know, just add it, diversify it. There's nothing, you know, better than the other. Okay, so I'm sure you guys have seen this list. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. This is the concept of a whole food plant-based diet. Less is more with the oils, your foundation, your basis. This is also similar to the Mediterranean diet concept. The basis for the Mediterranean diet is about seven to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables, which is why I think it also makes a big difference in terms of lowering cardiovascular risk. Um, grains, remember grains are not the enemy. People are having aversion and a fear for grains because of weight, but it's the processing and it's the, it's the lack of nutrients and, um, the lack of fiber that's in the grains. That is the problem. So please, you know, try to, um, kind of go after some of those grains because they're really important for, uh, the carbohydrates, the, the glucose, the, the, our body needs grains and they're loaded with lots of nutrients, legumes, beans, Leafy greens are on their own category just because they're so valuable that along with the basis of fruits and vegetables, you want to add 
leafy greens every day if you can, just so that you can get that serving. Um, nitric oxide is a really big one in the leafy greens that is just it really important for blood pressure management and endothelial health. So chewing kale, for example, um, one of the favorite things that Dr. Esselstein talks about, um, which I learned from him that, you know, kale in a smoothie is not as high in nitric oxide as opposed to us chewing kale, which is really important. Um, fats and oils, like I said, nuts and seeds, really good for us, but maybe nuts and seeds, I mean, are really good for us, but we don't want to eat as based on our cardiovascular risk. We have to kind of control them sometimes uh, in moderation. So diversity of the foods are really important. Eat the rainbow. Remember, 30 different might be the goal. Um, try to get yourself uh, to become resilient in the gut microbiome. So the more we eat, the, the, the more variety we eat. It's really easy in the spring and summer to get it. There's parts of the country I know that have a real struggle for getting good quality produce. Um, but in general, you can do teas. Remember, teas and beverages and herbs can also be uh, part of your plant base for 30, you can add mint to your tea, you can add cinnamon to your coffee, you can add um, lots of different things to your beverages as well. So like herbs and um, some spices. So, you know, you can use those as well to diversify. And one other plug for plant based is that it alkalinizes us so that an alkaline environment is actually very beneficial to the health of our cells, acidic environments, which are more plant based with dairy, um, tend to be more along the lines of creating an unhealthy environment and cancer cells sometimes grow easier in an acidic environment. So alkalinization is also another plug for a plant-based. I also want to just mention how you eat is also important. So eating your beautiful salad, but um, in being stressed out because your boss is yelling at you or you're eating in your car. I don't know how you eat a salad in the car when you're driving, but the thought is that when you eat, please eat, please eat mindfully because remember that parasympathetic sympathetic is that it's saying I'm running from a tiger. Even if you're eating really good quality foods, but you're rushing and you're mad or you're upset, you're telling your body you're running from a tiger. So when you eat, eat calmly, support that vagal tone, your vagus nerve is there to help you digest, but if it's it can't be on if your if your body's on sympathetic drive while you're eating. And add back spices. I, I can do entire talks on this. Spices are amazing. They're um, loaded in antioxidants. They're packed in nutrients. They just need a little pinch of it, and it adds to your diversity of your gut microbiome. It adds to that diversity of thirty per thirty per week. Um, and there's so many things to experiment with: turmeric, ginger, garlic rosemary, basil, cinnamon. These are my top ones. If it, you know, any spices is good. So please add spices into your diet. A um, couple of the other um, wor things worth mentioning in the epigenetic world is that uh, calorie restriction, we've known for a very long time that calorie restriction promotes longevity um, and the overall lifespan of, 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 of mainly in rats, the studies were done. But 30% reduction in calories expand the expand quality of life and lifespan. So not just living to 100, but you're living well to 100. You know, you're living in a better quality of life. So there were different diets that they looked at in the paper, um, which uh, was listed on the first slide. But the carbohydrate, the protein, and the lipids, there are some that were um, a little bit off, and I kind of have to go through some of the, the data between the lipids part. But um, different types of diets were associated with longevity. And so it's worth kind of 
looking at that, I think that could be a lecture on its own as well. Um, remember, carbs are not bad for us. So when we talk about 50% carbohydrates, where you're not talking about simple sugars, we're talking about complex carbohydrates, which are in oats and brown rice and sweet potatoes and multigrain cereals. So this is the bulk of where your calories will usually come from. Um, and uh, really, they support because of their fiber content. Also, they support the growth of the micro uh, the microbiome. Okay, so a carb is valuable for cellular and brain energy. It is more efficient than proteins and fats, and it's present present naturally in foods, dairy, vegetables, grains, nests, uh, nuts, and legumes. It's also in pastries and candies and juices. Remember that, but those are not the same carbs. Those are more simple. Um, those simple carbs turn raise glucose faster and raise insulin faster. So we need insulin. It's not a bad thing. In fact, if we don't have insulin, you know, we'll die because there's no way to get the glucose into the cells without insulin. So when we eat a simple sugar, our sugar usually goes very high. When we eat a complex sugar, our sugar goes a little bit high. So the more fiber that it has, the slower that rise is. So in complex carbs, you're going to have a slow rise. When the insulin, when the sugar goes up really high, really quickly, that insulin surges very quickly. And so what happens is that the insulin can push that glucose into the cell. And all of a sudden you're doing this with your sugar. All of a sudden you're getting, I just ate, I feel hungry. Why am I so irritable? I'm cranky. I'm irritable. Let me grab that. You know, you eat something like a box cereal in the morning, high fiber cereal, your sugar goes up doesn't have a lot of fiber, come back down, you crash, you grab a bar that's like a pre-made loaded with preservatives, your sugar goes up, it goes down, you get hungry, you get cranky. This is going all day. The problem is your insulin is doing that all day. And that leads to higher insulin levels, which deposit more fat, which can lead to more inflammation. The truth is that when your sugar is very high or very low, you're going to deposit fat, which is really a concern. We want to reduce obesity. We want to reduce our insulin resistance. So, you know, it really does matter what kind of carbs you take. And remember that when you take in carbohydrates, if it's excess, if you're not expending that energy, it's going to be stored as fat. Um, and our history with carbs is just a love-hate thing because we have all these anti-carb, low-carb diets. But remember what we want to do at the end of the day is grow a diverse microbiome to help us age better. You're not gonna do that without carbohydrates. Okay, so these are just examples of simple carbohydrates. Um, it's found in dairy and cakes and candies and things like that. It just provides energy, but really lacks any nutrients like the phytonutrients or the vitamins and minerals and fiber that we have with CarbFlex. Um, one thing to mention is that natural versus added sugars on the labels, it's worth looking at if you buy things that are have labels on them. Um, the effect of fruit restriction on glycemic control and the role of berries in, in, in blunting spice. So I, um, I have a lot of my patients using the uh, CGMs, which are chronic glucose um, monitoring, even in the, my non-diabetics, because I want to show them the power of their lifestyle. And when you wear one of these, and you only need to do it for a few weeks, you can see how your choices matter and how some things that you may not have thought about actually make a difference. For example, you know, eating a bowl of, you know, good quality oatmeal by itself may raise your sugar to X. But if you add blueberries, the thought would be that I'm adding more sugar, so my sugar would go higher. But in fact, it actually blunts it and goes lower because you're adding more fiber, you're adding more phytonutrients, you're adding those beautiful colors that the berries have, and it blunts that insulin spike. So really, um, 
when you do natural sugars, it's not the same as added sugars. It is case by case dependent. The amount of sugar fruits you can have is really dependent on your own body, which is why I love these CGMs that you can wear and you can kind of see you only need to use it for a few weeks to understand what your lifestyle choices will do. And in some cases, it causes um, the insulin to spike. So bottom line, fruit does not adversely affect blood sugar the way that industrial sugar does. So we do eat way too much sugar. Um, you know, there is a six teaspoons a day is the added sugar limit and nine teaspoons for men. I think even this is way too much. This is based on the American Heart Association. We want to move towards less simple sugar. This slide shows more about how much sugar is in our beverages, which is shocking. And so a lot of people they forget to mention how much they're eat, drinking, you know, as a beverage. And so this is one reason why we want to start looking at you know, moving towards water, also very, very important. Um, also what you're doing with your coffee, if you're adding tons of sugar in your coffee, you're making vegetable juice, but you're throwing in, um, you know, some sort of like a sugar concept to it is also unhealthy, but plain things that are, um, you know, soy milk and vegetable juice, you know, and water, of course, are very, very healthy beverages for us and we do need to drink. So please choose your beverages well, so it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat matters. So shoot for 12 hours of restriction if you can for um, food, periodic fasting, fasting mimicking diets. We did spend a little time talking about fasting yesterday in our in our um, discussion and the panel discussion. So it's very individualized. Take home messages is at least start with 12 hours of time restricted feeding. It does make a difference. Calorie restriction, you wind up eating not necessarily less, but if your window is smaller that you're eating, you're, you tend to spike your insulin um, less often and less high when you're eating versus eating in a larger, larger window. Um, so obesity is a risk factor for heart disease, diabetes, cancer. The fat cells actually become inflammatory. They become their own endocrine organ and they can cause epigenetic changes because you have that fat tissue. So Epigenetic changes can cause fat tissue, and then that fat tissue becomes uh, uh, something that causes the changes adversely to increase that inflammation and grow that inflammation. So we do know that um, the beta cell dysfunction that occurs in the pancreas, which is the pancreas is where our insulin is made, and we can adversely affect the way our insulin is released by our negative choices. So if you gain fat, in the midsection, it starts to affect how much insulin is also produced by the pancreas, and it's like a downward spiral. So we know that insulin, the obesity affects the endothelial cells, increases heart disease, hypertension, lowers our immune response to infection. So the fat that's in the midsection can actually adversely affect our immune response to infections. So what laboratory data can you use? Um, you can look at sugar, you can look at hemoglobin A1C, you can look at insulin levels, fasting, you can look at cholesterol patterns, um, and C-reactive protein is a marker of inflammation in our bodies, high sensitivities preferred. Um, and those, uh, those are some labs that I do routinely on my patients. So sleep deprivation is, is another big issue. Sleep deprivation can actually cause epigenetic changes that increase inflammation because at the end of the day, it can increase your obesity. It can increase your hunger. It gives you a larger feeding window to eat. I know that when I push myself, when I start pushing myself past my normal window for sleeping, I start to get hungry. 
And so the, the knee jerk response would be to go grab something to eat. But reality is, is your body's telling you, I'm tired. I need to go to sleep. Um, it also can alter your thermoregulation, meaning your metabolism and help makes you process uh, foods at a slower rate. And it can make you tired, which then makes you move less and you wind up eating more. And then at the end of the day, you have more fat intake. So prioritize your sleep, remove notifications, remove caffeine and alcohol, remove anything that really starts to affect your sleep. Stop your electronics one to two hours before bed. Uses um, the, the blue light issue is now controversial. It's not as effective. Um, just kind of put away your technology, maybe just read um, books, actual books, um, but try not to get too upset by things like the news, for example, because you don't want to go to bed angry or frustrated or scared. Um, and, and temperature, lower temperature between 65 and 67 degrees, which is pretty low, but less is more in terms of sleep promotion. So the lower temperature can also help prioritize it. But the key really is, is when we're very stressed out, most of us don't prioritize our sleep. So bring that back as a non-negotiable agent. And sleep also lowers cortisol and inflammation. So it helps metabolize fat. It helps hormone balance. It lowers cortisol. In the hormone balance world, cortisol is our quarterback for all the hormones. It helps, it affects the thyroid and it affects your sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA. So whenever we're dealing with hormone imbalance at the top, which is maybe estrogen, progesterone, we have to get on top of that cortisol and that sympathetic drive is key to kind of control with rest and digest. Um, it helps us heal. It grows, increases our growth hormone, which naturally decreases at the age of 40. Um, and we don't, we're not as resilient to injuries, recoveries. Um, and we definitely decrease muscle mass when our growth hormone goes down. Um, sleep also helps our memory. So lots of, lots of reasons, but overall mortality goes down as we sleep better. Okay. So we talked about this healthy microbiome talked about spices, nutrients, calorie restrictions. Okay. So the other problem is that we sit too much and this is also movement has also been shown to have epigenetic changes, the lack of movement and movement on our health. So it is the new smoking. It is just as bad. We are sitting way too much. We are um, and, and and we know that if we are sedentary for a long time in our younger years or and when we grow older, we are going to have lower mobility. So physical activity, light activities, very little activities needed to start changing our genes. So three minutes of low intensity walking and alternating it with high intensity walking, which is about 70% of maximum. Um, after you can use your breath sometimes to understand where you are in your um, tolerance for exercise. If you can talk through something, you're usually at 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate. Once you start getting into the heavy breathing and I can't have a conversation, you're getting closer to 85 to 90% of your maximum heart rate. Um, and, and, and as little as um, for six months doing this type of activity has been showing to change the inflammation cascades. There's a dose dependent inflammation um, curve with activity level. If you do high intense activities like marathons and 10K races and you know basketball games, that's not to say these are bad, but they can actually increase your inflammation. So they saw that in people who are, especially in people who are overweight, the higher intensity exercises can increase inflammation for short periods. So it's not wrong. It's just that there is a dose dependent effect with exercise and inflammation 
um, when you have, when you're, even when you're normal body weight. So you kind of have to balance things and cross train and do multiple different types of activity. We know that there's lots of benefits in exercise and in physical activity. There's lots of help with heart disease, it lowers blood pressure, increases insulin sensitivity, decreases cancer rates, but most importantly, it can increase muscle mass. Muscle mass is one of our biggest contributors to aging better. Not only does it help us maintain our body weight, it also helps us metabolize our glucose better, keeps us stronger, structurally more fit. And strength is like a huge, huge, huge gauge of how well you'll age, how well you'll stay independent. Um, so muscle mass is very key. Okay, so basically intensity, low intensity, high intensity exercises, work on your balance, your weights, um, and move more, sit less. Okay, so know that lifestyle choices are anti-inflammatory. Your what you put in your mouth, when you eat, how you eat, how long you're fasting for, your stress levels. So mind-body connection, breath work, yoga, all of those things are very important. Sleep, regulating your thoughts, focusing on optimism, and building your community of relationships are also very important to aging. Um, so right now I'm doing a sit-stand desk, um, and I do uh, basically I try not to sit in between patients. Um, these are some resources. I think I'm running out of time soon, so I'm going to kind of go quickly through the these resources. But there are things you can do during the day. If you're someone who sits in front of a computer all the time, you can do jumping jacks. You can do squats. You can do this. Zach Bush is a doctor who um, has this wonderful four minute video on on YouTube that you can do those exercises. It works 16 muscle groups, increases nitric oxide. Um, a great tool for doing it during the day. And it doesn't take, it takes those small spurts during the day to really change that inflammation pattern. Um, I want to spend just one slide on the, the endocrine disruptors, which are phthalates and this BPA. Um, these are in plastics and they are in fragrances and skincare and food packaging, and they can increase stress. They can increase inflammation. They can affect your lipids and your, um, your patterns of inflammation that can cause heart disease. So Start looking at labels and skincare fragrances. Try to buy whole foods that aren't packaged. Stay away from cans, or if you do use cans, um, you have to just wash it really well. Um, the food that's in there because it does cause uh, it does have that BPA in there. Um, stress is also hugely important. So I spend a lot of time talking about stress reduction in my practice. Why? Because that parasympathetic, remember, is rest and digest. Childhood stress, lower socioeconomic status has been shown to cause increased uh, epigenetic changes that can in later in life cause metabolic issues like diabetes and heart disease. So their genes can change at a young age that can it, that can set you up for more inflammation in, in as you get older, if there has been trauma or socioeconomic status issues where you have don't have access to good foods or you're in environments that are um, not not amenable to you know fresh produce. Um, they looked at the data with the epigenetics. They did eight weeks of yoga practice twice a week, one hour long. It lowered stress, but it changed their genes. It lowered the stress and the inflammatory markers in their body. Um, a daily practice of mindfulness also reduced inflammation on genes. And I do try to promote a mindfulness practice for most of my patients as a daily practice versus a weekly yoga class, because every day we're out in stress and every day our body needs it like oxygen. It's like dental care, our brain needs it, we need to be um, kind of nourishing our vagal tone. 
I also really like sun salutations. Um, these are um, a series of, of poses that can you can do in between your calls uh, that are, I, I try to wake up with it, you know, do it in the morning that just kind of wakes up my, the back muscles of my body versus the anterior muscles that are always in, in, um, in movement when I'm sitting all day. So you can do some of these poses separately, or you can do just a series. It takes just a few minutes. This is one of my favorite ways to wake up. Um, these are also really good tools for stress reduction that I give my patients. Um, these are very valuable for breath work, for calming your mind. There's something for everyone. So I just encourage people to go find it. Start looking at apps like Headspace, Inside Timer, and Calm. You can find tons of resources there. Okay, so worth mentioning, the other things that are environmental that can cause epigenetic changes are COVID uh, viruses in general, H. pylori, which is a bug. This has been the studied infections and periodontis, so oral, dental, or dental care can also change inflammation patterns in our body. So it's important to stay on top of infections and deal with, uh, you know, uh, things that can be, you know, not totally in your control. Um, smoking, excessive alcohol, air pollution also have been shown to affect the genes. And some of this is known for us for decades. Okay, so be empowered, you know, eat to live, don't live to eat. Be mindful. Why are you eating if you're hungry? Um, be intentional, plan and choose your foods as well as your activities, prioritize your rest, be present, chew slowly, work on stress reduction, move more, sit less. So these are the tools that will start to affect you, whatever genes you were born with. You know, it's so empowering to know that these toolkits are establishing roots in your body to flourish your health. And I hope this has been helpful for you guys. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Rao, for that very informative presentation. So now we're going to begin our Q&A session. Um, for the audience sake, I just want to go over a few things. Uh, we don't take questions directly from chat. What we do is we ask that participants raise their hand in Zoom. If you're not familiar with how to do that, what you need to do is go to the reactions button, second from the right at the bottom of the Zoom window, and you'll click on the raise hand function in the pop-up menu. Then um, I when I call on you, just state where you're from and ask your question. And we just ask the questions are brief and on topic. And uh, I'm going to start off with uh, with a question real quickly. So um, wh what if you had to give like a really simple you went, you went over the microbiome and, 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 and in good detail, but what, what would be like the simplest ways that we can go ahead and improve our our gut microbiome if we had to do like one, two or three things? Um, add tons of fibers, tons of color, just start eating the rainbow and looking at fiber. I think that would be a great start. I tell most of my patients to keep half of their plate. If the plate is where you want to start, half of it at every sitting should have fiber, vegetables and fruits, vegetables and fruits. Veggies are better than fruits for some people who have insulin and sugar issues. But in general, that's where I would start. I would start with half a plate of fiber and colors, just multiple colors. Great, all right. So our first audience question is coming from Debbie. Debbie, where are you from and what's your question? Hi, yeah, it's Debbie from Duxbury, Massachusetts. And I wanted to just go back to what um, you were talking about in the beginning, um, or I guess all the way through about the genetics and our genes and the genes that we're born with. And then 
that we do have some control over them um, and maybe different things in our genes are triggered by the environment or our lifestyle choices. And so they get toggled in a direction which is negative for us. And um, what I wanted to know, and specifically because apparently I have a toggled gene that went in the wrong direction, and um, it has given me Stargardt's disease and I'm legally blind. And it was explained to me that uh, that my brothers have it and because it's from my parents and I have it, but I was toggled and they weren't. And what it affects is beta keratin. So I actually cannot process beta keratin. So in the, which is difficult in the sense that choosing to do this lifestyle you're eating beta keratin all the time. It's one of the things they want you to avoid because your body doesn't do the right thing with it and it makes you get blinder. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm asking you is in your research with genetic research is it, we know that environment can toggle things in the wrong direction and toggle things like in the right direction. Is there is there any way that you think that in the near future, they're going to be able to go in and look at people who have genes doing the wrong thing and toggle them back. Cause I was, I have, I was, it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I have several patients with genetic disorders and uh, there are, you know, some of them are very serious. And uh, I think that w- what I said about genes is that most of the time the penetrance can vary. And I wonder that you said you have three brothers or two brothers. Two brothers. Two brothers. And I wonder if there's a hormonal component to the way your genes are manifesting um, because of the estrogen in your body. You know, hormones are also can be a manipulator of the gut microbiome and maybe facilitate some changes in the genes, maybe not always favorably. Um, I would maybe talk about um, looking at uh, ways to kind of improve your body's quality of handling the um, colors in terms of detoxification. Um, I would kind of maybe have, do you, have you ever worked with a functional medicine person, functional medicine doctor? Um, I, I did for years when I lived in Africa, but I was not diagnosed yet with this particular. Okay. okay. It, it was adult onset. So it was, it came up okay. kind of after, but um, I, I'm all into this stuff. Every other topic you talked about, I'm doing it hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, so um, detoxification, meaning how your liver is processing things, how you're getting rid of toxins, how your body is not just at the gut level, it's also the liver. And so um, nutrient like nutrients like those found in celery and parsley, I don't know how much beta carotene's in them. There, there might be a lot. I don't know. I have to go back and see how much, what foods are actually good for you that could be detoxifiers. Um but it is, it is something that you could work on, say, with milk, thistle. I don't know. It might be something to go by. I work on detoxification systems, work on gut microbiome. I work on nutrient maximization by checking nutrients and making sure those nutrients are up to speed so that the liver can do its job. Um, those are kind of the areas that uh, maybe would be helpful to do again with the functional doc is to make sure that your personal medicine would be optimal for you and you're doing everything you can to try to, you know, prevent, prevent any further loss. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you, doctor. Um, let, let me ask you a question about epigenetics real quickly. Given how profitable it is to tell the story that 
everything is just genes. So you can eat whatever bad foods you want and then don't worry about it. We'll give you drugs. You know, the pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the pharmaceutical industry will just give you drugs. How well received is the, um, is this idea of epigenetics given, you know, and the power of lifestyle to change what your genetic programming could be if you eat the, you know, the, the same way that we have been over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah, no, I think that there's a gigantic frustration in the in the patient population that's basically screaming that what we're doing right now isn't working. We're practicing sick care and we're not practicing well care. And so the toolkit, the frustration I had in, in terms of entering this journey was this really ridiculous concept of like entering medical leaving medical school with just two things, basically medicine and surgery, um, as as options for my patients, which maybe you throw in physical therapy and some sort of manual therapy type of stuff, but it was just frustrating for me as a doctor. And now I think patients are frustrated. I hear a lot of discontent in patients who are demanding and screaming about, well, what, what else can I do? I have Hopkins in my backyard. And, you know, Hopkins, if you, if you go to Hopkins, typically, you know, if you have, like, I've had patients that come to me that are in tears because Hopkins says there's nothing they can do about their cancer. I mean, the most frustration, frustrating thing, I think, as a patient, as well as a provider is to say there's nothing you can do. And so that is mostly not true in most cases, that there is always something to do with lifestyle. And lifestyle medicine is emerging. Patients are demanding it. Drugs are not the answer. There's side effect after side effect after side effect. You chase it. Polypharmacy is a real big problem in the elderly, um, causing a lot of medical issues. And Insurance companies, I think, are recognizing that that cannot be the answer, which is why Dean Ornish's program is now getting covered, because they're finally waking up and seeing that if we do more with lifestyle, we'll pay less money at the end of life for people because they'll be healthier. So I do think it's a changing, emerging concept of lifestyle is important. Lifestyle is medicine. And uh, I do think it's gaining momentum. And I think patients are demanding it. And so there's there's change happening. So you're talking from the patient perspective, which, which makes sense is the medical establishment. You know, you mentioned that insurance is covering it. Are the doctors being yeah. receptive to it? Cause I've gone to doctors and been like, Oh, I reversed this and this. And they're like, no, that's not possible. Well, I have to say that it's not, it's not a hundred. I mean, it's more than when I started even five years ago, I've been doing this now in some way, shape or form. I became an acupuncturist 23 years ago. That journey was so foreign. I actually wasn't allowed to practice acupuncture do nutrition in my first practice because they said we're not that voodoo practice. So I I have seen evolution where now um, specialists, orthopedic surgeons, gastroenterologists, rheumatologists are referring me patients because they know that there is another world. And the problem is you, you may have to go get trained again because we didn't learn this in medical school. So I do think they're open to it. That doesn't mean they're practicing it. They might be referring out for it because it's gaining acceptance and they're seeing outcomes. They're seeing patients, their patients get better when they come back and say, oh, I did this. And they're, and just like me, when I started this journey, I was so confused as why people were getting better when they were doing, I mean, obviously exercise and diet has always been part of our recommendation, but we didn't really know what that meant. Um, and, and my journey really started when I had my patient see a nutritionist 15 years ago, and he came back in three months and he was able to lose 40 pounds, get off his CPAP, lower his blood pressure meds, get off the statin. And the first thing I asked him, I was also a culprit. I said, what did they give you? Because our thought was you have to give someone something in order to get them better. Or if you take something away, it's usually an organ, it's a surgery. 
So that concept was so foreign to me that when he said she didn't give me anything, she took away blah, 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 which was all these inflammatory foods. And I just looked at him like, what? And so it, it piqued my interest and I pursued it. And I started looking at foods and spices and, and how to cook without salt. And it, you know, everybody's journey is separate, but if you're listening to your patients, I think physicians are ultimately going to say, there's definitely something to this. <laughs> I've had, you know, ophthalmologists come back and, you know, with autoimmune disease, I had a patient with iritis. She, he said, you'll never get off your steroid drops. She went back in six months on a plant-based diet with low oil and she got off her steroid drops. He didn't understand it. He said, just keep doing it. I don't get it. But, you know, I think as you're seeing patients get better, you're going to be more open to it. You just have to be as a physician because at the end of the day, I think most of us just want to get our patients better. Great. Thank you. Um, and what is the best way to remove toxins from our body if we have them already? Okay, so that's really good. So the four four ways of detoxification. So urinating, make sure you're getting light colored urine, supporting your bowel movements, right? One to three bowel movements, form stool, um, good quality stool, uh, sweating movement that's making you sweat. And the fourth place is the liver, which is the most underserved area that's that needs a lot of nutrients. So things like things that are loaded in um, fruits and vegetables. So we need B vitamins, magnesium, vitamin C, we need lots of different nutrients to help us pull the toxins out. Um, cruciferous vegetables, parsley, cilantro are my go tos, um, milk, thistle teas, dandelion teas, I add on for patients as well, I do a lot with teas. Um, and also the concept of fasting. So when you fast and you do different types of fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, you're resting your liver. And when your liver is rested, it's going to be more efficient. So those are some nice places to start for detoxification. And then in functional medicine, we do a lot by testing people's for, people for actual biotoxins and mycotoxins. And then we start adding binders and things that would help the liver if there are some, but we have to find them first. Great. Thank you, doctor. Okay, our next question is coming from Cheryl. Where are you from and what's your question? Hi, I'm from California. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for all that very useful um, practical information. When you were talking about prebiotics, I think you said that we get different bacteria um, from eating the same food, depending on whether it's cooked or raw. And yeah. so my question is, do you think for a healthy person, a high raw or all raw diet is less optimal for a healthy, optimal microbiome than eating a diet with more cooked food? Well, I think it depends on how diverse they are. If they're eating 30 different raw vegetables a week, then they're serving the basic premise. I mean, um, I think, you know, 30 di adding diversity matters. And if you're able to digest that raw food, I have a lot of patients who just can't eat raw because their gut microbiome won't digest it properly. They feel uncomfortable. Um, I, it doesn't matter to me, to be honest, in terms of raw, there's too many differences in terms of, well, the nutrients when you cook, this is different than it is. It's just so mind boggling and kind of weighs you down that I just want people to eat diversely. So if you're in love with raw foods and you like raw foods, but you're eating 30 different plants in a week, that's, that's fine. I mean, you're just eating all different colors and you're eating all different, you just have to work harder, I think. Um, but you can throw in spices and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's about diversity. And so whatever way you can get it is fine. And some people just do better on raw foods, which is fine. I think that's where that personalization comes in. But remember not to eat the same five foods every day, which is what a lot of people just get stuck doing. 
Thanks so much. That's so helpful. Okay, I'm going to move to David. David, where are you from and what's your question? Yes, uh, I'm David from the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, I had two quick questions. One, is it true that as you get older, you need more protein? That's number one. And number two is concerning exercise. Let's say you have an hour each day to exercise. Is it best to do it in one session or do it throughout the day? Is it really going to make any difference? I know you shouldn't exercise before you go to sleep, but outside that, does it make sense to constantly move as much as you can throughout the day if you have an hour? Or is it or is it really going to make a difference if you just do it in one session for one hour? The short answer is yes to all of what you said. So it really depends. I think that the simple concept, just like I think doesn't matter raw or cooked and just eat the vegetables and diversify, just move. We sit way too much. So we they have there is data that shows intermittent movement, like the Zach Books video for four minutes where you're just moving, you're doing jumping jacks, you're doing sit-ups, or even a few minutes in between, they add up and they can still add value to your overall longevity and your inflammation. Um, but I think that diversity matters. So say you have two hours one time where you're just doing dedicated cardio or dedicated weights or something, and then the rest of the week, all you can do is just move for an hour extra, just stand, not sit, do a treadmill desk, whatever it is, it's still going to give you benefit. You're going to see it in your muscle mass. You're going to see it in your body weight. You're going to see it in your inflammatory markers. So my my um, assessment to your question is, yes, all of them are important, but remember that diversity is important. Just like don't eat the same foods all the time. Don't keep doing the same workout. Don't just do aerobic mix in weights, mix in balance stuff, yoga, 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 please add yoga because our balance decreases at the age of 40 and fall risk is, is there. Men get osteoporosis too. Men get fractures, not just women. So our balance is key and we lose balance. And as we age, we want to keep our structural integrity and that involves muscle mass. So resistance training, not just cardio, you know, decreasing fat percentage balance is really important. So we want, and our strength, so there's a lot to do with in terms of exercise. So if you can vary it and you have different times where you're doing different things, and there are some days all I can do is stand all day. That's This week I've been so busy. I'll, I haven't been able to dedicate any time to a workout, but at the same time, I'm just not sitting. So I'm still moving and I'm and I did jumping jacks while my coffee was brewing this morning. You know, I just try to do it as, as it comes out. You do the best you can. And I think when you get too rigid, like, I have to do this. It becomes like when I used to train for triathlons, I started hating exercise because I had to work out. And so the concept of have to, as opposed to I get to really is a mind shift. So whatever gets you to move more, go for it. So you don't have to do what anybody else is doing. Just kind of use your goals and use your personal journey of like what your sugar is doing, what your insulin is doing, what your lipids are doing and tweak it based on what's not working. And then also the protein. Oh, the protein. Yes. The protein. There is some data with Walter Longo and the longevity schools that say that um, as we age over the age of 65, we need 65 grams of protein. It needs to be a little bit more um, to maintain the muscle mass. And I think that area is a little controversial. I do recommend that for my patients. I do try to get them to get more protein as they get older to, because that fat muscle ratio is constantly changing, mostly because our growth hormones going down and our, it's just harder. Like if I did nothing different, the next five years, I'll just gain fat and lose muscle. Even if I worked out the same. So you have to work harder and harder and harder to maintain that muscle mass. 
And so there is a little bit more need for that protein. It's not that an excessive amount. It's about 60 grams a day, which I think like just like fiber, if you start paying attention to it, you can easily get it in a plant-based diet. Great. Thank you for that, doctor. So what foods have the greatest amount of phytonutrients? Uh, so in the antioxidant world, there is a list of foods. So cloves are up there. So spices, spices per volume of food, spices blow everything away. Their herbs and spices have a very high antioxidant, anti-inflammatory phytonutrient potential. So that's why I love spices is just start throwing it in there. After that is berries. Berries are really, really effective. Um, all the colors, they're really loaded in different uh, phytonutrients because they're different colors. So if you had to start somewhere, I would start with berries. Great. And um, what are the what is the best way to improve our sleep? Oh, uh, okay. So first and foremost is to start prioritizing it. It's not a light switch. So if I am running, 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 running all day, stressed out of my mind, and then I say, okay, it's 10 o'clock, I'm going to close the lights and go to sleep. That's not going to work. So you have to start planning your day to start settling down. We are, a lot of us are wired to the circadian rhythm. So we raise up with the sun and go down with the sunlight. There's about five or six different chronotypes, which means that some people are morning people and other people are evening people. And so it's not wrong. You just have to kind of understand where your chronotype is and kind of structure your day to gear yourself towards seven to nine hours of sleep. You want to wake up refreshed and restored. So if I am a 6 a.m. and I go down to bed at 10 a.m., around seven or eight, I should start slowing down. I should start putting away, ideally, I know this freaks people out, putting away your electronics about one to two hours before bed. Stop looking at scary things like the news. You know, start reading a book that's calming and relaxing. Maybe use Epsom salts to start to calm down. You can put your feet in a bucket. Epsom salt has magnesium. It's just relaxing. It's calming. Warm water. Um, anything that's like an herbal tea that's calming. The problem with herbal teas for some people is they have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So you have to kind of weigh that out. Um, and also just things like meditation, breathing. There's entire sections on Insight Timer app that has a sleep section. So there's sounds, there's binaural beats, there's um, meditations, there's breathing techniques. Yoga Nidra is one of my favorites. It's a yoga that you're on your back for, closing your eyes, and it's a, a guided meditation. And it helps you fall asleep and stay asleep longer. Um, so there's lots and lots of things that you can do to kind of, but it's not a light switch. So you have to understand that I'm going to start putting time into um, an evening practice, not just a morning practice. People have morning practices where they get up, they journal, they breathe, they do yoga. The evening needs the same attention. It's got a calming, relaxing type of thing. Maybe you can't do 20 things, maybe you do one or two, but it's a cycle. Like everything that's a positive cycle. So you, the more you start sleeping, the more you start sleeping easier. So if you don't sleep and you're sleep deprived, it's harder to fall asleep and stay asleep. So as you try to start incorporating, maybe up front, there's a little bit of an uphill battle, but then over time, you're going to find that you're going to be falling asleep easier and staying asleep easier. Great. And what, what type of fasting do you recommend? Uh, intermittent fasting? Do you, do you recommend multi-day fasting? How long, how often? Yes, I am obsessed with fasting. I think it's wonderful. It's the only thing that got me out of my pre-diabetic range. I've been pre-diabetic most of my adult life, um, no matter what I did, uh, didn't change it. But when I started fasting, um, time-restricted feeding is a simple way where you start eating in lower time frame intervals, where you're eating only in an eight-hour period versus a 12-hour period. 
it's really individualized. I mean, some people based on their meds and their, their health issues, they have to eat every two hours. And if you need to do that, that's fine. But I used to be someone who couldn't ever get their fasting blood drawn because I had to have food. Otherwise I was really grumpy. Um, but I now can go three days without food. I just do water, but it's something I've worked towards. Um, I feel better. People feel better. Their brain works better. The more insulin resistant you are, the more fasting could help because if your sugar is not doing this all day, you're going to find yourself feeling better, more energy, brain works better when you eat in a smaller window and you can evolve into something where you're doing it once a week. You can do it two days in a row, water fasting. I also have my patients do prolon or fasting mimicking programs. They're more processed foods, but they're soups and they're lentils and their um, beans and their kale crackers and olives and teas um, that they come in a box and it helps people. It mimics a water fast for five days. And that's really where the data is. A water fast for five days shows a significant impact on the immune system um, that lowers inflammation. And if you do water fast regularly, you'll see lower lipids, lower sugar, lower C-reactive protein, lower waist circumference. So there's a lot of benefit um, in fasting. So I would really encourage people to look at what type of fast would be good for them. And I would start maybe with the time restricted feed. So maybe 12 hours, because that sounds kind of like, why would I eat, you know, more than a 12 hour window, but a lot of people eat dinner at seven, and they'll grab a snack before bed. So if you could just start doing 7pm dinner, 7am breakfast, and don't eat before that, that's great. And some people just eat breakfast because it's time for breakfast. They're not even hungry. So I would say push that window if you can push it. Because even when you work out fasting, sometimes there's benefit in terms of muscle mass and fat loss versus when you eat and work out really depends on the intensity of your workout and the time. But I highly encourage my patients to try time restricted windows and different types of fasting. Thank you. So um, in your book, you uh, have a chapter where you, um, entitled uh, the, the role of positivity in health. Can you talk about um, what, you know, what the power of positivity is and how we add more positivity into our life? Yeah. So I think this we is have, the, just to, you know, we have two, we have two minutes. So oh, sorry. Okay, no, so no worries. I think that, um, I think that the well care concept comes in really high here. Like we want to live a well life that we're thriving in. We have good relationships in, we have energy. What optimism research has shown is that when you have hope for the future, when you have a positive outlook, you live longer. And so it's a 10% difference. And so when you're 70, 10% is seven years. So it's a significant chunk of time that you actually can live better longer and be more engaged in your life. So tools for optimism and tools for positive wellness is not just, oh, I'm this nicer person. It mm. also actually translates into better quality health as well as longevity. So that chapter focuses on the how, which is, I mean, as simple as journaling, um, you know, doing things that are um, positive uh, journaling a day or doing things like meditation, exercise are always helpful, but also um, at random acts of kindness where you're going out and you're looking for the good things and your gratitude. Gratitude is key. So I would just encourage because I don't have time to talk about it more, but to look at that chapter, just look into positivity and optimism. Um, there's a lot of ways to cultivate it, which is one of the biggest things I learned in my research in this is that you're not born an optimist or a pessimist and you have to stay that way. You can actually change that. I was a born pessimist and I worked really hard to become an optimist, which is so inspiring for me because it's so 
your outlook on life just changes. And um, what you see is so different. You don't look for judgment. You don't look for the bad stuff. You kind of are always looking for the positive stuff. It's a great place to be. So, And, and where can people find your book? Um, on Amazon, um, Body on Fire and Body on Fire Cookbook. All right. Great. And I think actually have you were you were very concise with your last answer. I think we've got time for uh, for one more brief uh, question. So uh, you have a chapter in your book called "Recharge, Eat Well, Play More, Sleep Deeply, Heal." Can you tell us real briefly what the essence yeah, of it? So, so it's 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 the same that slide that I said that lifestyle is anti-inflammatory. So it's like your Motrin. You know, you have these lifestyle options, and just start by knowing that it's not just food. It is food a lot, but it's also how stressed out I am. So, you know, play more, have more joy, um, reduce your, your, your stress loads. If you can say, you know, sleep more, prioritize your sleep. Nobody's prioritizing their sleep and move more, just sit less. So along with your wonderful plant-based diet, the whole food plant-based diet, you know, remember that these other things matter. And so just focus on the sleep and the the mind body connection, as well as your movement. And I think you're going to raise the game of your health because it's going to just take you to a new level. Thank you so much, doctor. We could unmute the audience. You're amazing. You too, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.